Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Wednesday the 15th of June 2022. We always include a community service announcement, asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively, and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. But right now, we're going to zoom over eight time zones to speak with an amazing astrophysicist who is currently in Potsdam, near Berlin. Hello, Flo. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for getting up so early. Now, today it's truly wonderful, and I'm very grateful to be speaking with Floor Brookgarden, who's an astrophysicist doing her PhD at Harvard in Massachusetts. Floor is a gravitational wave researcher and a prolific and effective ambassador for early career astronomers. She's a well-established mentor and supervisor for astrophysics students and has been published in highly respected journals. And most recently is her paper where she investigated the first two black hole neutron star mergers detected in gravitational waves, as well as a paper on binary black hole mergers. She does beautiful research and powerful outreach and she also speaks a few languages, but thanks for speaking us in English today, Floor. <laughs> yeah, that makes uh, life a bit easier. No, thanks for having me. Excellent. Okay, so before we talk about your gravitational wave research programs and your outreach work, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Floor, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? Yeah, of course. So I grew up in the Netherlands. I'm actually from like a small town that's called in English Three Mountains, even though there's no mountain whatsoever. <laughs> um, it's very flat. Actually, funny enough, I was always interested in science, but I always thought actually physics wasn't really for me. And I wasn't doing that well in physics when I was in high school. But then I think at some point, I think it's a very classic story. I started kind of reading books about black holes and space from people such as uh, Stephen Hawking. And that really got me excited about the topics and all this crazy phenomena that are out there. And I kind of felt way more as I was like traveling through the universe by learning all these topics, much more than actually doing physics. And I think actually that together with uh, having a 
good mentor as a teacher in high school that did physics really inspired me to pursue this topic. Yeah, excellent. Okay. So what about those school days and your early ambitions? Have those ambitions changed over the years? Oh, for sure. I feel they're still changing, sometimes even on a day-to-day basis a little bit. I remember when I at least went to university, I really thought I would end up becoming like a string theorist or much more of a theoretical physicist. And then little by little, I think astrophysics really got me where I just got so excited after doing some internships or projects in astronomy that, yeah, really changed my mind to to pursue a career in that topic. Very good. Okay. So after that successful school career, you did your BSc, a double bachelor's degree in mathematics and physics and astrophysics at the University of Amsterdam, Mm -hmm. then a student exchange up to Sweden's Lund University and some advanced astronomy and mathematics, then back to the University of Amsterdam, and then at Vrije University, the Free University, the VU, you whizzed through your Master's of Science degree in astronomy and astrophysics, and you won first prize for your Master's thesis at the Anton Panikok Institute for Astronomy. Then you did a lot of international astronomy-related trips, including going to Copenhagen for a summer program, studying gravitational wave astrophysics, a research stint at the acclaimed Astron Institute, then over to the UK as a research fellow at the University of Birmingham, a brief visit to the University of Edinburgh. Then you graced us down here in Australia with a visit and spent some time as a research fellow at Monash University, where my daughter's studying. So there you made some more lovely friends, and now you're at Harvard University in Cambridge. You're over (laughs) halfway through your astrophysics PhD, and that's an amazing study and travel trajectory floor. I hope it's as much fun as it looks (laughs) Yeah, when you listen like that, it sounds very overwhelming. <laughs> no, it's. I think it's been truly amazing. And I think I'm very privileged and, and honored to have had those opportunities. It was never so much that I, oh, I wanted to travel. And that's why I ended up pursuing these opportunities. It was much more that I really was excited about astronomy. And then I was always just looking for new places or new people to meet or departments to visit where I can kind of learn new physics or new astronomy and meet new people. But yeah, it's been quite a journey so far. And I'm really, really like lucky and happy that this field actually and pursuing astronomy allows you to go all these places, but also particularly like meet all the friends at all these different places and make new friends. And yeah, like really get to meet all these wonderful people that are so uh, enthusiastic about the field as well. Uh, yes, fantastic. And I also assume you've probably still got a pretty big bucket list. Now, I'm not going <laughs> to go on about the awards and grants and scholarships you've been winning every year. But just before we talk about your PhD, I'd like to ask you to tell us a little about your trips to two of my favourite places, Edinburgh and Melbourne. Now, I'm asking this because we always want to encourage more students to take up astrophysics and astronomy and see the world. How did those two trips come about and how did you enjoy them? 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, so Edinburgh was a bit funny. I remember, so this was at the end of my master's degree, and I was taking a, a gap year in which I was starting with a lot of research, but also added a lot of traveling. And so I started going to Edinburgh and especially Birmingham, because I was collaborating with someone there, actually with Ilya Mondel, who was at the Birmingham University. And there in Birmingham, they have this amazing big department in Graftation Way. So it's really a, a dream come true to kind of like visit a department like that, that's so focused around Graftation Wave astronomy. And then I went to Edinburgh as well, because there was another uh, collaborator there. And then the fellowship that I was on it was kind of located in Edinburgh. So I was there for a few weeks, but it really amazed me. I thought it would really be this short visit. And that was it, just a short visit on my way to Birmingham. Uh, but I was really inspired there. I really love the city Edinburgh. I think it's still on my uh, top list of places I would love to live for longer term, or at least another part of my life, because I thought it was just so vibrant and there's so many things to do and parks to visit. There's beautiful nature, but then a good combination of lots of activities and, and things going on in the city. Yeah, and I, 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 rem I still remember fondly that going there and meeting some of the students of my collaborator. And I even one of the students uh, taught me how to better juggle and gave me this like juggling book that I still uh, carry and have with me in uh, Cambridge. Yeah, funny how these stories end up being. And what about that trip down to Melbourne? I've fallen in love with Melbourne. That was amazing. I was there for, I think, four or five months. And Australia is just so lovely. I love all the animals, all the weird trees and birds that you have there that sound and look completely different compared to the ones I was used to in Europe. And I think in Melbourne particularly, the department, Monash, Monash University, and the astronomy department there was so heartwarming. I remember so many fun nights and friends that I made there that I actually still talk to today and still feel so much support from today. So it was really great to, to go there and yeah, meet all these friends. And I still actually do a lot of collaborations and interact still with a lot of the friends there. So for instance, the Facebook group that we actually created, I think I actually set it up to get a lot of help from friends that I made in Australia. Oh, and today, that's actually also funny. Today I put a new paper on this archive server to make it visible for everyone else. And it's actually, again, with two people I, uh, I met in uh, Monash University. So it's funny how some of these visits, they still carry on four years later or so. Fantastic. Yeah, great to see those enduring friendships. Now, mm -hmm. I see that you're in the third year of your PhD at the moment, and you yeah. already have a number of first author and collaboration papers published. And some very recent gravitational wave and LISA prediction papers in particular that I hope we can talk about soon, but are you doing your PhD by publication or by thesis defence? Are you on track, Floor? How's it going? <laughs> Always a, a challenging question to ask a PhD student. Are you on track? <laughs> I think it's very, uh... Sorry, no pressure. <laughs> no, I think it's a fair question, but you're probably aware that a lot of astronomers have this imposter phenomena where, speaking for myself, I often, you know, it's hard to say that you're doing well because I feel so uncertain or difficult to say because, yeah, you're always dealing with your own insecurities of, is what I'm doing good enough? I'll answer your question and say that I think it's going very well. I'm very happy right now um, about my PhD. 
I have a great supervisor, great environment uh, at Harvard, but also I feel like a lot of support from the rest of the community. And yeah, it's going well. I think I was somewhat lucky. So the some of the project I was working on already like three years ago is at the start of my PhD. They ended up being very well timed. So for instance, the Black on Star paper that you mentioned, I worked on it for many years and then we published it and it was like basically published a few months before the first two observations. A lot of these things really help in kind of progressing your PhD. And I think I was a bit lucky uh, in, in those aspects. But yeah, I think it's going well. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, you talk about luck a fair bit, but to me, it looks like you're making your own luck and there's a lot of hard work in it. And many PhDs often have great mentors and supervisors. And you yourself, you've got a great record of mentoring and advising students at Harvard and other institutions. But would you like to tell us about some of the people who've supported your career and your research directions? <laughs> yes. I was almost going to ask, do you have another five hours if, if I need to list them all? No. <laughs> I think the support is um, extremely important. And I think for me, but almost everyone, it really takes a village to really be, get where you are, at least for me, like a village of support. And there's so many people I could mention, like so many also professors and supervisors I've had that really mentored me or encouraged me to pursue certain opportunities. But the funny thing is, if I really think about this, I think the most important support has typically come from like peer students. And there's so many like moments that I remember to this day where I, the help of my friends were so important. I remember friends in my master's that it was one of those Fridays really early before Christmas, like a few weeks before Christmas. And we were working on this assignment with all the master's students in, in my year that had a due date at midnight of that Friday. And I remember I was working on like the last assignment and I was so almost burned out because it was in the same period where we had all these exams, all these deadlines. And then I was applying at the time for PhD positions. And so there was a lot of work on top of everything. And especially it came with a lot of insecurities because when you're applying, you have to, you know, write all these letters and, and, and write down, I'm amazing. You should hire me. But of course I didn't feel that way. And I felt every department would just immediately reject me. And I remember that I was like crying during the assignment. And then my two best friends, they came to me and they were like, okay, we got this. We'll, you know, we'll get through this together. And we did it. And we handed it in. And afterwards we went to some Christmas party that our uh, institute organized. And yeah, it's these moments. It's so good to, to have people around you that can just give you a hug or yeah, cry with you when <laughs> you feel like you're going through the worst. So I think it's been um, it's been really important. Yeah, yeah, it does certainly take a village, and yours sounds like a very warm village. Now, our listeners will be aware of gravitational wave astronomy and binary systems and novae, because in previous episodes we've spoken with researchers that you've worked with, like Professor Matthew Bales and. Dr. Ashley Reiter and Dr. Jan Eldridge over in New Zealand and Dupatri Chattopadhyay. And Ooh. let's do some science now and look at your PhD. Can you paint the big picture of your PhD research? So technologies, 
and methodologies you're using? And what are the big questions that you're looking at? Oh, yeah, no, of course. I think this is an extremely exciting field where I'm in, but I bet that every person that you interview will probably say that. But yeah, so the big thing is that now these gravitation wave detectors by LIGO, Virgo, and Kagra are detecting these black hole and neutron star mergers. So to this day, they have seen about 100 of these collisions between either two black holes, two neutron stars, or a black hole and a neutron star pair. And this is extremely interesting. And this set of observations is only going to grow further. So there's going to be a new observation run actually starting at the end of this year. And the expectations are that they will detect another maybe 500 events over the coming years. And so this is extremely exciting. But I think the big open questions in astronomy today is from these events is really how did they once upon a time form? And what can we actually learn about our universe from these observations? And those are really the questions that drive me on a daily basis and keep me awake at night, where it's really how did these black holes once upon a time form? So are they coming from pairs of massive stars that were born together? Or how did these stars live their lives in order to end up in this black hole, black hole collision? That's truly kind of, you know, a final faith the relationship between two stars. That's very rare and very uh, exotic, but super interesting phenomena we can now uh, detect. Fantastic. That certainly is the big picture. Okay, so let's drill down a little closer into that big picture. Looking at your publications, look, we always ask a couple of technical questions for listeners because we know there's listeners that like to put their propeller hats on when they listen to an episode. So we have a short section. Could you talk us through some details of a particular paper or other part of your research that you're working on now that, um, as you mentioned, keeps you awake at night, or some details of something that's driving you crazy or astonishingly exciting, or both? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, there's, there's there's a lot of things. I can kind of name... Too, but maybe I'll just start with the first one, which is black hole neutron star mergers. Yep. These are such cool and exciting events. And I, I love them so much and I get so excited just about the sources. And so the story is that already before LIGO, Virgo, Kagura were detecting these gravitational waves, we had seen pairs of neutron stars. And we had seen these uh, through pulsar observations. So some of these neutral stars are rapidly rotating and they emit this radio emission. And so we can see uh, this radio emission every now and then and observe these double neutral star systems. Yep. And then LIGO, Virgo, and Kagra turned on. And the first thing that they saw are these like black hole, black hole mergers for the first time. Um, these sources were detected, which is extremely exciting. And they actually already detected after a few years, they detected 10 of such sources. And then they also detected a pair of neutral stars merging. And so the big remaining source that wasn't detected yet are actually uh, a pair of a black hole and a neutral star that are in a binary and, for instance, merging and would be detectable with gravitational waves. Until 2020, these sources hadn't been observed yet, even though LIGO, Virgo, and Kagra, they had observed these pairs of black holes and pairs of neutral stars. And in addition, actually, these black hole neutral stars, they also contain a neutral star, which also can be this pulsar, so emit this radio emission, 
So in principle, we should also see them in uh, radio astronomy, but we had never observed them. So a big question that a lot of people in our field were asking is really, where are these black hole neutral star binaries? Where are they? Why are we not seeing them? Uh, at least in 2020, a lot of people were asking this question. And it's actually one of the reasons why I organized a conference session <laughs> last summer, actually, and we called it literally, it had the title, where are these black hole neutral star binaries? And uh, our aim of that session was to, you know, get theorists and observers together and try to answer this question because even in my own research, so in my research, I was studying these black hole neutral stars from a theory. And some of my predictions from the paper and research were that they should be common, relatively common, and we should basically have seen them or be about to see them. And then the field exploded, right? So then in 2020, like early 2020, but they didn't announce it actually uh, until later in 2021, LIGO announced the first two observations of black hole neutral stars, like ever, yeah, ever observed. Yep. And it was pretty hilarious. It was pretty well-timed, I think, because the announcement of the detection of the two sources ended up being one day before we organized this conference session uh, with the title, Where Are the Black Hole Neutral Star wow. Binaries? Yes, I remember fondly that the first speaker was someone from an expert on gravitational wave detectors. And I remember that it was uh, Christopher Berry, who's actually also in the UK. And I remember that he started with a, a slide with, this, with our title on it that said, where are the black hole neutral star binaries? And then the first thing that he did when he went to the next slide was just to cross out the word where and replace it with here. So it was, here are the black hole neutral star binaries. And then he spoke for the rest of the talk about the two detections uh, of the two systems. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. Now, you mentioned predictions then. Mm -hmm. A follow-up. I found one of your first author papers that made some predictions about future gravitational wave observations involving black hole and neutron star mergers. What were your predictions about these mergers and how did you derive them and how are the predictions holding up? <laughs> Ooh, tough question. No, true. So we rewrote this big paper about black hole neutral star mergers and it was actually trying to calculate what is the number of black hole neutral stars that we can expect to see with gravitational wave detectors. And what are their properties? So what would these black hole star mergers look like? What are their masses, their mass ratios? And then we especially try to focus around the many uncertainties in our models. So I run simulations where I try to make a mock universe. So I make kind of like mock galaxies and mock stars. And then some of these stars are in pairs. So in these binary systems, and they will end up as these black hole neutral star uh, mergers in rare cases. And so we try to predict or estimate in our universe how often this should happen and what their properties are. And we especially try to focus around many uncertainties in making this model. So there's uncertainties in how you build up this universe, but also in how you model the evolution of these stars. And yeah, we so we find like a wide range where it depends a lot on some of these uncertainties that you said. But we kind of found that these black hole neutral stars should be more common than maybe a lot of people thought. Because I remember working on this paper and people even warned me. They, they went to me and they're like, oh, we will never observe black hole neutral stars in the coming five years. So, because they're so rare and they should almost never happen that 
you know, don't waste your time now, maybe just wait five years and then we might see them. And then actually I was finding in this paper, even though it's of course still uncertain, I was finding that it should be much more common in gravitational wave detections than maybe some people thought in our fields. And those turned out to be at least somewhat correct as we saw with the two detections, although how common they exactly are and how frequent they occur is still uh, somewhat of an open question and uncertain and something you can't immediately answer with just two detections. So we'll have to wait until LIGO detects even more when it will be even easier to constrain their frequency in the universe. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned the gravitational wave detectors. What about LISA? LISA's going up soon, hopefully. Could you tell us a bit about LISA? Is it going to be the James Webb Space Telescope (laughs) for gravitational wave astronomy? I am really excited about LISA. I think it's a wonderful instrument. And yeah, I think in some sense it will be. I think it's it's hard to say because in within the gravitational wave field, there's so many exciting detectors being built and being proposed that will all kind of be new James Webb telescopes. I would say, yeah, so LISA is going to be amazing, especially because it's sensitive to lower frequencies compared to LIGO Virgo Cagra. And so relatively, uh, it will detect very different sources compared to LIGO. So LIGO is really sensitive to these stellar mass, so with masses similar to the sun, uh, black holes and neutral star mergers. Whereas LISA instead, much more will observe particularly like supermassive black hole collisions throughout our universe. And I think that's extremely exciting because it will really provide a new way to kind of explore galaxy evolution. And then also these supermassive black holes that reside in these galaxies and how often they interact with one each other. Fantastic. And for listeners that don't know about LISA, why don't you go and have a look at it? It's a beautiful-looking instrument. It's an astonishing triangle in space and well worth looking up. It's going to be just a beautiful thing. Okay. Um, thanks to you, Floor. I've just seen the Netherlands has pledged 900 million euros to build the Einstein telescope in the Netherlands to detect colliding black holes. Can you tell us about this instrument? Oh, yeah. The Einstein telescope will will be like a dream come true for gravitational wave astronomers and I think astronomers as a whole because it's basically an even better LIGO, Virgo, and Kagura detector that's more sensitive to even lower frequencies. And by doing so, it can really detect these black hole neutral star mergers to much further distances. And so it's expected that it can detect these mergers beyond redshift 10, which is beyond when the first stars formed. And so the crazy thing is that this instrument will literally see every single stellar mass black hole, black hole merger that's happening in our universe between now and like the early universe. And it might even see whether things exist beyond when the first stars forms, which will be interesting to see if black holes can form from other things than stars. So, yeah, I think it's a fantastic instrument. Oof. Breathtaking. Fantastic, Floor. What a beautiful instrument and can't wait. It's such exciting times for everyone to see these 
amazing things happening. And look, good luck with the rest of your PhD work, Flora. It sounds like you've got a great career, a great research trajectory, some wonderful people to work with, some brilliant scientists to work with. Right Mm -hmm. now might be a good time to ask how the current worldwide COVID-19 crisis has impacted on your studies and your research? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I think the pandemic definitely didn't help, especially in PhD. I think the most challenging part was that the university was closed. So we were all working from home. And doing research, I don't think working from home is the the best experience because I think you really learn most from having active discussions with your peers and being able to ask questions to everyone, which wasn't possible during the pandemic as we were working from home and bound to our computer screens. So I think that was definitely a big challenge. I was also dealing with some personal challenge at the time and it was quite difficult actually to find sometimes the support because, you know, it's much easier to just walk into a room and maybe explain your situation instead of doing it online over emails. So I think that didn't help. But uh, the one benefit I think the pandemic brought is that we really were, like a lot of meetings were starting to be online. And so it also brought this opportunity to kind of join meetings at other universities that you would otherwise have never gone to. So I think that was maybe a small benefit to the overall downside that I was really missing this uh, peer interactions. Yeah. 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 It's a double-edged sword in many cases. Okay. Thanks. Now, you do amazing outreach work as a mentor, as a teacher, as a symposium chair, student advisor on social media. You've developed a great place for early career astronomers, and we'll give a link to our listeners at the end of the show. Can you tell us about your passion for outreach and what's coming up next for you and why is it important for you? Oof, <laughs> tough question. I don't know. I, I, feel, I feel a lot of it is, is coming from two things. So first of all, I think I just want to share my enthusiasm and uh, many of the research that I have with others. And I wish like more people had the opportunity to use these. And then second, I also think it's a, it's a way of really using this so privileged position yep. um, where you can do this science and, and kind of give back to some of the community. Yeah, so I think the reason why I'm doing some of these things really comes that I want to like share some of the things that I wish I knew <laughs> and people, how people have me, helped me early on in my career and want to share it with other students that might benefit from it. Okay, thank you very much. Now, the mic's all yours now, Flora, and you've got the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science, in equity, in representations of diversity, science denialism or science career paths or your own passion for research or our human quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I find it's a, a hard or a difficult question actually to answer. But I think if I had to bring it down to kind of one key topic, 
I would say that scientists and people in general sometimes are missing the right support or support network. And, and you mentioned this before in, uh, in our call that, you know, this village of people that really support you and get you to pursue your, your dream career, it's so important and so vital. And I think it's really important to really provide this to everyone who's going through research or wants to pursue a career in research or is going through a PhD because there's just so many challenges and so difficult to handle these by yourself. And I think, especially in science, if there's one thing I could change is that it's, especially underrepresented minorities don't always get the support network uh, as much as they need because they might go through different challenges than say, um, so say for instance, black students or uh, students who come from a low income background, they go through completely different challenges than students who come from a much more privileged background. And I, I really wish there was a better support network to support these students when they are going through these challenging and trying to pursue a career that's a bit different from the standard path that most people go through. Yep. So true. Okay. Now, what else should we keep our eye on? Is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on, Floor? <laughs> I am, well, there's, a, there's actually this 12th of May, but that's probably already too late by the time this is published. There's an announcement about the EHD, so the big telescope that makes a picture of hopefully the Milky Way black hole, wow. um, so the supermassive black hole. But other than that, I think LISA and the Einstein telescope are really the um, long-term big things to look out for. And then also LIGO, Virgo, and Kagra are getting online again in December of this year. And I think there might be some new surprises in their detections as the year goes on and they are looking for these uh, sources. So I'm really curious what, what they might find and especially the surprises and the unexpected things that they might see during the detection run. Thank you, Flo. We will indeed keep our eye on those things. Yeah, the event horizon. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Flo Brookgarden. On behalf of all of our listeners, it's been a privilege for us. And I love the enthusiasm in your voice. It's really fantastic. And thanks for getting up so early and giving us your time and your schedule. And those on social media, they, you should follow Flo's Twitter feed and her Facebook group. She's at Floor Astro on Twitter. And for early career astronomers, her Facebook group is called Early Career Astronomers and Astrophysicists. It's a brilliant resource and a very nurturing online community. No surprises there. It's a private group, but you can apply to join by going to tinyearl.com forward slash Floor ECR. That's all lowercase. Congratulations on all your great work, Floor. Thank you so much. I hope you can come back to Australia sometime and good luck with your great adventures, whatever they happen to be. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much. And thanks for all the, the work and support that you do. Bye now. Bye. Have a good night. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get 
the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com and for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. We'll see you in two weeks when we'll bring you Ian's July Sky Guide. Radio Wave.